Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we're interrupting our normal coverage of Gene Wolfe to give you a sample of what we're doing for our patrons on Patreon.com. Patreon.com is the place where you can go to financially support our work on the podcast. When you support us on Patreon.com, you'll get access to bonus episodes and additional content. Yeah, and we're, we're dropping this episode in the, into the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast feed, not just to tease you with the bonus episodes, though we think those are pretty great. They are. Uh, but because after we cover Wolfe's first novel, Operation Ares, our patrons are going to be 100% responsible for determining which Wolfe stories we cover in between his novels. That's right. We're only going to cover half of those short stories between the novels, and we want our patrons to help us select what we'll be covering by voting in a special poll that we'll hold around the time we're wrapping up Operation Ares. Right. That poll will cover the stories between the novels Operation Ares and The Fifth Head of Cerberus, and we'll do subsequent polls to choose the stories that we'll cover between each of Wolf's novels. But because Brandon and I actually live several months in the future, by the time you're hearing this, we'll be only a few weeks away from covering Operation Ares, and we wanted to make sure that everyone in the Wolf Pack has an opportunity to participate, to, to vote and choose which stories we're going to cover. So please, head over to patreon.com slash Media to check us out. We're immensely grateful for the support, and we're very excited to see which stories you want us to cover. And now, let's get on with the show. Welcome to the Clay Temple Media patron feed. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we're talking about the short story, The Scarecrow's Boy, by Michael Swanwick. This story was originally published in the magazine Fantasy and Science Fiction in 2008, but we read it in the Swanwick collection, Not So Much Said the Cat. Uh, Brandon, I think I could just say unequivocally before we dig into this that I loved this story. Yes, me too. Me it, too. This is uh, probably one of the, my favorite stories I think that I've read in quite a long time. It's extremely complicated, though the plot is very simple. The ideas Swanwick is playing with are really complex ideas. Well, why don't we just dig in on it then, Brandon? Uh, and how about you get us going through the plot of The Scarecrow's Boy? The Scarecrow's Boy opens with the description of a little boy running through a field. He's lost and missing a shoe. He stumbles upon a scarecrow hanging in the field and is stunned to see it. The scarecrow speaks to the boy and he tries to console him. The scarecrow appeals to the boy's sense of familiarity and he compares himself to the boy's other bots back home. Yeah, this introduction is just really, really charming. It yeah. takes a knee here, really tries to comfort the boy. There's something not even just paternal, but but grand paternal about this. It's really nice. And I and I thought about just starting by reading the opening paragraph, but the problem with that is is that I just would want to read through the whole story. I cannot recommend enough for our readers to go out and get a copy of this story. Oh yes. If if you if you haven't read the story, hit the pause button, go read it and come come back to us. We've got a lot to talk about with this story that we think you'll find beneficial, but you should read this beautiful prose for yourself. You must. So the boy gives his name as Pierre. And he tells the scarecrow um, that he was in a car accident and that his father told him to run into the woods as fast as he can. The scarecrow further consoles Pierre and he gives him a piggy ride back to a farmhouse that they can see in the distance. The scarecrow asks if the boy wants to sing a song. He starts singing some nursery rhymes and the boy doesn't know any of them. But they do both know a song whose lyrics include, We do not sup with tyrants and hang them from a tree. The simple bread of freedom is good enough for me. Yeah, this is a really, I, I think this might be a really great world building detail. So you're right, these, uh, to, to say that these other two songs are, are, are nursery rhymes or, or common songs that people know. Right. Well, the first one is I've Got Sixpence, which is really dates back to the 17th century, mm-hmm. though there's a very popularized version of it from the 40s. And then, of course, the other song is the Itsy Bitsy Spider, right. which, and I don't know anyone who doesn't know the Itsy Bitsy Spider. You know, everyone around the Anglophone world knows yeah. this song. But this third song, We Do Not Sup With Tyrants, this seems to be something Swanwick has made up. I think so. I went on a frantic search looking for the origin of this song. The only place it exists on the internet, at least, is is in a an excerpt from this story. From this story, exactly. And so, to me, uh, although I would, I'd be, I would be delighted to hear how we have screwed this up from listeners, <laughs> yeah. um, but to me, this seems like this is actually the, the nature of the song about 
not tolerating tyrants, about hanging them from a tree, is actually meant to tell us something about the speculative world that this story about scarecrow bots is taking place in. I agree. And and it's great kind of English four-beat poem, you know, in the in the style that Emily Dickinson took from hymns when she was writing poem. It feels English, it feels real. It's tremendous. Yeah, I could not believe that this was a song that was not did, did not authentically come from like the English Civil War, for example. I yeah. think Michael Swanwick has the complete version of this song that he made up. Um, <laughs> I, I would love to go to a con uh, where he might sing it for us. Yeah, oh uh, I think we goodness. should start an email campaign to Michael Swanwick <laughs> about this right now. I agree. So I, as they're singing, the scarecrow changes um, his heading and he takes Pierre to the barn behind the farmhouse. There's a car in the barn, and it comes to life and addresses the Scarecrow as Jack. The car's name, we're told, is Sally. The Scarecrow explains that he's helping Pierre, and he asks to borrow Sally's uplink. And Sally says that her uplink was, quote, yanked. It's at this moment that we're given a sense of what the Scarecrow is really capable of as a character. He tells Sally that he was just checking if she had an uplink because he wants to make sure that she was off the grid. The Scarecrow and the boy get into the car... Jack instructs Sally to take them north on the highway. Yeah, there's a great a great bit here when where he's where the the Jack Scarecrow robot is is putting the boy Pierre into the car and asks if he's warm enough. Yeah, um, and there is something just and and Sally is on board with this too. She's really concerned about the boy. And right, there is something they they do. They're old old robots out yeah. of out of shape, out of commission, but they just they seem like grandparents who are very concerned about pampering their grandchild. Yeah, and what's remarkable, I mean, is what 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 would a robot know about the cold really or or the boy's comfort in this situation there's just something as maybe we'll get into the discussion about their programming that makes them very empathetic and very aware of this child's um physical needs yeah and i think there's also i have to say that there was something about this scene about the the finding of the little boy pierre out here uh in, in a farm and going to a farmhouse and having these this older couple perhaps yeah uh, older male and older female robots taking care of him that 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 seemed like the superman origin story to me yeah, yeah. It just it tickled me so Sally questions whether they should be leaving um, the barn and she thinks that they should check with the young master Jack reminds Sally that the master is no longer young the car and scarecrow reminisce about when the master was young and they also acknowledge that they've been neglected by their master for quite some time. Pierre falls asleep and tells Sally that Pierre's father was a diplomat from the European Union trying to cross the border and that it's important that they protect Pierre from the national police. Diplomatic immunity is not a thing that is practiced in the country they're in. Yeah, this is some marvelous, marvelous world building here. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're told here about crossing the border, yeah. but not which border. Uh, we know that we're heading north toward the lake, and, and we're later going to learn that the lake is part of the border. Right. Um, so where are you going in America that uh, has a, you know, an international border to the north? Uh, right. Is a, you know, Canada, perhaps. But we're going to find out some more information that maybe that's not what's happening here. Uh, we also have here the introduction of state police and national police. And it's, it is, as you say, national police. It's not federal police. Uh, there's a diplomat from the EU. He's from the EU. He's not from a member state of the EU. And there is some political or perhaps political ideological tension here when Jack asks uh, Sally, says, do you understand their politics? And Sally says, no, I can understand the words well enough. I know what they're supposed to mean. I just don't see why they care. Mm. So there's something about a, a disagreement of words, an ideological right. disagreement that has this little boy's life in, in jeopardy. Here. Right. Double meanings and new speak and all this kind of stuff that, you know, if you're programmed to understand meaning, it's very confusing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so kind of out of nowhere, Jack asks Sally if she believes in free will. And Sally says, and I'm going to quote here, I'm programmed to serve and obey, and I don't have the slightest desire to go against my programming. But sometimes it seems to me that I'd be happier if I could. The Scarecrow tells Sally that he wasn't asking if they had free will, but he was asking if she thought the humans had free will. 
He wonders if their master could have turned out differently than he did, or if the master was always going to wind up the way he wound up. Yeah, there's a really neat bit here in this conversation where Jack Scarecrow places robots and humans into categories of us and them. Yeah. As if they're separate species of sentient creatures. The boy wakes up and he's hungry and the scarecrow says he'll go get him some food and so he takes a screwdriver from the toolbox in the car's trunk and he holds up an automated mini mart the scarecrow brings snacks back to pierre and he gives pierre a piece of his shirt as a napkin yeah this uh the scene with the mini mart i think is really great because he has to actually like bully the mini mart into giving him the food uh he rips out its uh its ability to communicate its communicate device of some sort and then threatens to punch a hole in him and steal the food <laughs> if the mini mart won't just willingly give it over right uh, and he also kind of like intimidates him he's like you know what makes you think you're better than me this is what kind of new machine are you yeah that's <laughs> you right know? yeah and it's really great and this whole scene actually really quite reminded me of um and and i think it was probably a, a self-conscious allusion to a similar scene in philip k dick's uh, great novel ubik mm. uh, in which a food dispensing ai machine refuses to give the human protagonist a free cup of coffee oh yeah, uh, and yeah, yeah. A, one of the great sci-fi monologues <laughs> of all time ha- happens in that scene and i think i think swanwick here is, is alluding to that scene uh, again just really quite tickled me well the police spot the trio and so sally drives them off road to the lake at this point we're also told that the group is really headed for the border this is where it's made explicit in the text sally remembers that this midnight trip is a lot like the ones when the master was running drugs jack asks sally if she thinks good and evil are hardwired into the universe she dodges the question and can see from their position that the border is blocked off. It's barricaded. Kind of in a weird moment, Jack threatens to do violence to Sally, and he says it's in order that he might be able to rescue her from the consequences of her behavior on this night. And the border militia fires on them. Um, they're at the lake. The border militia begins to fire on yeah, them. Yeah, they're not just at the lake. I think they're, they're, they're on like the lake. They're like driving on the they're, lake. They're on the lake. Yeah. I think there's actually some indications earlier that the car it does not drive on the road so much as over the road wonderful i did not catch that um, yeah let me yeah. Get, let me let me give you that paragraph uh, or a sentence or two because it's actually quite beautiful and the first time i read it i didn't pick it up as indicating some technological thing i just thought it was a beautiful bit of prose it's not until on my reread yeah the, with this that it occurred to me so here's here's the bit it's 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 from page 45 in our our book uh down dark country roads the car glided soundlessly a full moon bounded through the sky after them, and which I just thought was a beautiful pair right. of sentences. And I thought that much like the word bounded, that glided was metaphorical. But we get to the lake and the car's driving on the lake. So I, I wonder if the car is literally gliding. I think, I think it must be. I mean, that's um, because it's clearly on, out on the lake. And it's interesting that he's just glided on the road and then he talks about going off-road. Um, and the mental image is kind of the one we would think of where it's like, you know, in this rough terrain, but it's still um, gliding. Yeah. I think over, if it's not over the path, I think it was not making physical contact with the rough terrain that this, that then some of these plot elements make a little bit more sense. And uh, there's also a great description here too. I think Swanwick just has a real knack for describing vehicles in motion, which is, uh, I guess that's a good skill set to have as a writer. I said, uh, before the car could say anything, a scooter boat raced out of the darkness it sat atop long, spindly legs, looking for the all, for all the world like a water strider. Uh, and that's that's yeah. when the militia shows up, and right. it's a really beautiful, beautiful phrase there. Yeah, and so while while they're out on the lake, they're stopped by a boat, and the boat puts them under arrest. Yeah, and there's a the border militia. This boat has five small white skulls painted on it, and they the militia says that they're under citizens' arrest. So this is also some right. great but world But it's also building. the boat the boat is talking as well. So there's the border militia and there's there's the boat. The boat is the border militia. The boat is the border militia in the same way that Sally is a car and Jack is a scarecrow. Oh yes, right. Yeah. The the boat itself is part of the border militia, but the right. AI that is speaking in the boat, I suppose, is not officially a member of the border militia. It is a machine. Right. Because so there is I, I only point this out because there is an occupant on the boat as well. Yes, that's, as we'll that's correct. Just, yeah. um, in a moment. Um, so the scarecrow asks to board the boat and he wants to explain the situation. And he goes to the man who's on board the boat and 
he, the man is drunk and he's uninterested in the situation. Yeah, he's in not, general. He's not just drunk. He's uh, he's looking as pale and flabby as a maggot. Yes, yes. Beautiful, beautiful <laughs> description. It's wonderful, and this is important um, because what's revealed to us in a moment um, kind of changes the situation. The man on the boat commands the scarecrow to make a drink, and the scarecrow does. And this is an indication that this drunk man is their master. Mm-hmm. The scarecrow tells the master that he has brought him the boy that everybody is looking for. And then Jack's attitude changes. He says that he's not the young master anymore, that the, the person he's speaking to isn't their master. He doesn't know who the man in front of him is. He only knows who he was. Uh, a little time passes and Jack tells the boat that Sally and Jack are going to cross the lake and that the boss has ordered the boat to stay. The boat Jack says, can ask the master if he can. When they reach the middle of the lake, Sally asks Jack why the master let them free. Jack says, it must have been for old time's sake. Sally mentions that they wouldn't be able to function without a master due to their programming. As they reach the other side of the lake, the scarecrow cries out for sanctuary. The young master, he says, claims political asylum. And here our story ends. Yeah, we get here this last line, right? This is the trickery that Jack Scarecrow pulls on his own programming, right? He interprets this as uh, that his programming is to serve the young master, not the human uh, who has the name, the the adult human who has the same name as that young boy he was uh, instructed to serve so many years ago. And he has found a new little boy who he identifies as the young master and he's going to serve his interests. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. really awesome. I mean, I was, I, I, I stood up and slow clapped when I finished reading the story. No one was around to hear it, but it just still, it seemed the story, the story was so great. It deserved it. If Glenn, if Glenn slow claps in the middle of the woods and no one's around to hear it, did it really happen? <laughs> <laughs> and other philosophical questions we'll get into we, with this right. discussion of this story. Yeah. So Brandon, let's, uh, let's dig in on this story here and let's yes, get, let's get yes, started yes. on our discussion. I think it's clear to both of us and I, I hope it's clear to the wolf pack as well that there's an awful lot to talk about to unpack and to to get into with this story and i I thought maybe i would just start here by prefacing that this story has uh, an awful lot in common with wolf's work right it presents us with human-like robots who force us to ask big questions about what it is to be human and it occurs in a speculative world whose speculativeness is constructed with really just just tremendous uh, and highly skilled subtlety so I thought we'd, we'd start by addressing this second point and uh, try to tease out the nature of this world and its mm. inhabitants a bit. I know mm-hmm. this is not, not the meatiest part of what we're going to do today, but I feel like we, we might need a little warm up to get to some of these big philosophical questions. So let's try to figure out what this world is like first or how it got this way and what its relationship is with our world. So I thought we'd just start with this second point by trying to tease out the nature of this mm. world and its inhabitants a bit. So the Scarecrow says to Sally, as you pointed out in the recap, this is a lot like the time the young master was running drugs. And Sally says that she doesn't like to think about that. And in return, Jack Scarecrow says, you can't say that was any worse than what he's doing now. So the question I have is this, Brandon, what is the master doing now? And what does it have to do with skulls painted on a boat? Right. I think what's going on with the master is he's basically become some kind of criminal, I don't know, kingpin. Um, in the small neck of the woods that he lives in. And he's got this border militia. He basically uses machines um, and maybe abuses the programming of these machines to serve his own darker ends. And this has caused him to be complacent as a human being. So he has all the comforts in the world and all the things he wants. Um, and he doesn't have to do anything to maintain them. The machines take care of everything for him. And I think we're shown that um, at the end when Jack confronts the master, that this is, you know, indeed not the person that, uh, uh, you know, a a pair of caretakers like Jack and Sally would have ever created. And, And part of Jack's concern is, am I responsible for allowing this to happen? He's taking on the burden of self responsibility beyond his programming is giving into every command of a single person, really the best way to treat them. Is that what's best for them? I think that's part of what's going on in the background of the story. This character is clear, has gotten into criminal activity. He's maybe at the height of, you know, his own world. He's ruling his own kingdom, but um, he's ruined by it. 
Yeah, he's definitely a ruined figure. I mean, he's described yeah. as a as a maggot. Right. Really, just I, yeah. I, I described it as beautiful in the recap. It's not beautiful. It's gross, but yeah. it's great writing. It's great writing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I I got the impression here, Brandon, that we're dealing with a near future. Uh, North America, near future United States of America that is no mm-hmm. longer the United States of America. I agree. Yeah. Fragmented into several different nations that are still comprised of of, of constituent states. Uh, that's which is why we have a state police and a national police. Right. And I got the impression here with the imagery of skulls um, on a boat that's painted black uh, and being called the border militia. And Scarecrow describing this as as something nefarious, something bad uh, that he's doing, something that is worse than than running drugs, for right. example. Um, that that the 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 master, the old uh, maggoty looking master, right. uh, is. Uh, is complicit in a totalitarian regime of some sort, a regime that wants to that that is likely to execute uh, this little boy, right? Just because yeah. of his parentage. Well, and the, maybe the rise if if the United States has fractured into many nations, this is part of a regime that is trying to maybe strong arm it, it into reuniting under a totalitarian regime, and that's kind of the sense I get from that as well. Is with the national police and the state police and the border being blocked and all these things going on and the national police are willing to not show consideration to diplomatic to diplomats from other nations um, who may be visiting to bring aid that they're they're trying to kind of remain isolated and gain power through isolation yeah it sounds like it it's although that this story is a you know this is a story about grandparently robots taking care of a little boy this world that he's that that Swanwick has constructed in between the lines here seems like a dark, a real sinister, uh, a real evil, horrible place. Oh yeah, I uh, couldn't agree more. And and yeah. just just the the efficiency, the economy of language with which he he builds this world is so impressive. I mean, it's evil enough that these artificial intelligences, which are advanced enough to pass like the Turing test, are beginning to question their programming, which is nuts. Yeah, and I think, and, and it's interesting here too, right? We've we've seen that as a as a big question, and then this question of of, of evil, our good and evil hardwired into the universe, right? And it is interesting here to see that perhaps perhaps overwhelmed by forces uh, or caught up in forces that are sort of bigger than him that he can't really oppose, maybe through his own agency. We're not sure in the story, but the the master, the maggoty master, yeah. is has become evil. He's engaged in evil, but these robots, these creatures without souls, Jack Scarecrow right. certainly has his eye on what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong in this world, and is making, um, he's taking charge of his own agency and is making active choices about who he wants to be, the type of world right. he wants to live in, uh, and what types of actions he wants to take and what the moral and ethical reasons are for them, which I think is a great, perhaps sad kind of commentary on what totalitarianism and maybe nationalism, political ideologies perhaps in general, can do to a person's mind, or to a yeah. person's agency. Well, it's par- part of the what we're given in this story is this this person is given over, as I kind of mentioned briefly to total complacency because they no longer have to do anything themselves. They just tell others what to do. And these others are machines that they don't need to worry about the safety of. There's no empathy needed for them to live their complacent life. Um, and they surround themselves with willing subjects. And that's a, that's a huge problem. People need to be challenged. <laughs> and this master might be kind of a small as you mentioned you know a small player in that represents what's going on in the kind of larger political game in the nation that this is taking place in i think there's a really interesting point to be made about what happens when you are no longer active and you think everything can be done for you by others um and i think you know while this isn't a story specifically about automation and where our products come from, like being able to go to Target and get whatever you need. There's something a lot of science fiction writers play with. Wolf plays with this idea. Swanwick, it's explicit here, but you see it a lot in science fiction. The end goal of the kind of society we live in is always going to end up in this sort of situation. Many fear. 
Yeah, that's a that's a great observation, and I think that that's going to bring us, I think, kind of nicely into um, the second question that I want us to talk about, and which I think is the big question that Swanwick is posing here in this story, and and that's this question of whether or not humans have free will, yeah. or in this case, perhaps whether or not robots have free will. So out in his field, Jack Scarecrow has been thinking a lot about free will. Um, so, and I, w- I would like us to think about it as well. He's been out um, in his field for a lot. Look, it takes a long time to, to, for these questions to kind of come up. For many, they don't come up naturally. Yeah, you know, it's I think, just a reality. Look, when you've got nothing to do except scare crows away and listen to your police scanner, maybe you spend like, some time oh, tackling man. some of the uh, the tough philosophical yeah. questions of the ages. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd like to start, Brandon, by looking at some of the places where I found free will at play in the story. And, and, and I want to talk about them individually before we have a larger discussion about the subject. And I, But I suspect you're going to have found some places that I didn't see. And I think that'll be really, really okay. great for you to jump in on. So uh, first off, we see Pierre's life painfully changed by forces that he can't even comprehend, let alone uh, control or confront. Um, and for me, at least, this made me wonder whether Pierre has any free will, any any agency in the in the world, in the universe mm-hmm. here. So the, the second place where I see this is uh, when we encounter the master, and we see that we learn uh, that the master um, has had about as much social and economic freedom as you can get, and he's made terrible choices, and he's become a horrible person. And mm-hmm. um, this, much like you were talking about our ability to buy anything we want at Target or get anything delivered to us from Amazon, um, it perhaps all of this freedom maybe is not good for us. And so to me, thinking about this in, in terms of free will, I wondered, should should we have free will, even if we, if we do have free right. will? Should we have free will? Right, right. So a third place where I saw this was uh, at the Minimart. The Minimart robot seems to have a wide latitude in its programming when Scarecrow confronts it, right? It doesn't automatically move to protect the items it has for sale or, or even to protect itself, but it pauses and it, it and it considers the situation and has to make a choice, a choice of whether or not it should give away its possessions freely or right. be damaged in an attempt to protect those possessions. And while those choices have certainly been constrained by human programmers, it still is making an active choice. And so I wonder, right. does the Minimart have free will? Is this choice the Minimart is making, is that a type of free will? All right. Finally, Brandon, the, sort of the, so the fourth thing I wanted to get to, and I think this is like, this is the big the big mm-hmm. thing is the Scarecrow himself. So the Scarecrow, as we pointed out, circumvents his programming by interpreting his requirement to serve the young master, not as a commandment to perpetually serve the human who bore that title decades ago, but rather as a commandment to serve any human he identifies as the young master. Now, is this choice free will? And if so, has he overcome his programming to make this choice? Or is he still bound by his programming? So yeah, I think I think there's two questions at play here. One is a question of identity, and this is kind of um, this story presents identity, particularly with relationship to the scarecrow's ability to trick his own programming in the old philosophical problem of the ship of Theseus, which is like there's this boat, and if you replace all the parts over time, um, is it the same boat? Like, what makes a thing cohere? into its essential self supposing there are essential selves there are essences and so that's kind of the second question is like did the scarecrow just crack um the essential versus existential debate and then just decide he's a net existentialist and that the master has no essential being the young master but that that identity can be conferred upon whoever he needs it to be conferred upon in order for his programming to work. Now, there's a wrinkle there, um, which is that Pierre is um, passive in this story. He's a passive character. And so all that the Scarecrow Jack needs is just the idea of the thing in order for him to change his programming. The idea of a new young master is enough for him to take action. So that's one thing that's going on is with identity and what makes a thing a thing. Uh, it's a huge, huge problem. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Yes. Um, An unsolved problem. Yeah. Um, and then the second problem you brought up is free will. And and one thing you didn't bring up that surprised me was um, Sally's thoughts, her, her continually referring to her thoughts. I liked this better. I thought this was better. How she's able to pick the things she thinks about and reflects upon as good. So we're talking also about the nature of the good here. And these 
robots, we don't know if they're programmed to really think about the good. Um, but they are definitely able in some way to control and direct their thoughts towards things that they find to be pleasant or meaningful. And to me, this is the biggest evidence for free will in this story. Apart from action, it's really the freedom to direct your thoughts, which then kind of builds character, wisdom, reflecting upon the right things. You become who you are based on your ability to habituate your thoughts in a certain direction. This is kind of a a theory, I suppose. Sure, yeah. um, Maybe we should pause here, actually, and and, and just uh, before we really dig in on this, even address the question of like of what is free will, right? Uh, what, not not in the Swanwick story, but what is free will uh, as theologians and philosophers uh, discuss yeah. it? Boy, that's the thorniest question, isn't it? I let's start by saying what what um, maybe a, a kind of let's start by problematizing the idea of free will because sometimes you have to circle around these ideas before you can define them. Um, one of the British empiricists, and I forget who. Um, specifically, it may have been Locke, um, thought that there was no such thing as free will because both freedom and will are powers, which is, uh, if you think of a power as something that can affect the world, right? So power is something that affects the world. Mm -hmm. And you can't use one power to describe another power. So free will, you wouldn't describe will as free because you can't use a power to describe a power. So freedom... What is, what is will? I guess that's... I really Will, just will is like, the power to use your mind to affect the world, I suppose, something like that. Yeah. So the question of free will, then, is is this question of to what extent do human, are humans in control of their own agency, of their own ability to affect the world? Are we making our own choices, or are they being made for us by right. some external factor? By, and or a, ser- or a series of by them. many, many, many complex external factors. Yeah. So if you're going to talk about something like... Um, let's say free will is impacted at least in some way by, you know, the impact one action has on another. So think of a billiards game, um, which is limited to a table. The rules of the game are limited to a certain number of balls in a table. And then, you know, one ball hits another ball. And here you have just a series of outcomes based on an uh, initial action. Um, Aristotle called this initial action like he it was a su- supreme being called the prime mover who's like God who put set everything into action. And when you think about things in terms of limited domains and rules of those domains, you can get close to something like free will. But when you're talking about the larger game of all games, the set of all possible games, it's really impossible to kind of understand what free will is. So using the programming of a robot to talk about free will is a really smart idea on Michael Swanwick's part because they are potentially limited by their programming. And so within the game of their programming, how are they able to um, become free? To me, that's the question of all freedom. Yeah. Is freedom is really about limits and not potential. Um, how do we leverage our limitations in order to act rightly in the world rather than what do we rely on the potential of the larger game that we can't control? Um, and here Jack, I think, expertly limits his or expertly leverages his limitations to become free within the game, um, within the limits of the domain that his game can be played in. Yeah, so you, you're right, right. So Jack Scarecrow here, does to to my mind anyway overcomes his own programming by or by circumventing by circumventing it right um, but that's only one factor that constrains him uh, right. in his choices there are still all of the the choices that constrain us as humans as well or factors that constrain mm-hmm. us as humans as well that he'll have to deal with but this gets to this this trick this use the use of the robots and the use of programming boils this it is almost essentializes this into right. can can robots overcome one of their constraints, right? Um, and 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 to and to enable us to to wonder about free will, and and I think in some ways that the use of that as a as a device, um, as a thematic device, as an obstacle, really brings us to the question 
uh, that's been so important to Christian theologians of the relationship between human agency and God's will, uh, or God's plan for the world, and and of course all wrapped up in, and will, in salvation. I mean, kind of speaking of will in terms of God's plan, um, I mentioned kind of Aristotle's idea of the prime mover. This is the ultimate power to impact reality. Will is really the the power we have to impact and change our reality, and and God's will is a thing that bends all reality towards its original programming kind of for yeah, for lack right. of a better yeah. for lack of a better word where this becomes a major problem in theology is the question of whether um humans are able whether mankind is able to free himself from sin thus escaping the torment of hell or whether it is only through god's will um, and something that in theology is called election, uh, which is not super controversial in general Christian theology, though the means of election is very controversial. Yeah, that's where the controversy is. Yeah. And in fact, much of the Reformation is taken up with this. And it's actually really, these are questions. This question of free will is something that Christian theologians in uh, in the period that I study for a living do ask, but yeah. they don't ask it with as much at stake uh, as as theologians do during the Reformation. Less people were getting killed over the question <laughs> in the period you study. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe only slightly, but I will say yeah. that, um, you know, the bit... Uh, um, one of the um, texts, one of the thinkers who is really instrumental in uh, especially uh, John Calvin's uh, Reformation thinking about um, uh, about the question of free will uh, comes from uh, the 4th uh, and 5th uh, century Bishop of Hippo, Augustine, who mm, is mm-hmm. a person I work on. Uh, and he argued was in an argument uh, with another important thinker a guy named Pelagius you know in this in this time and uh, this did cost some people their lives this mm. question of of uh, predestination and election right um, far fewer <laughs> you're right than, than during the reformation but it was still there was there were still some things at stake yeah. um, but during the the middle ages proper which is I think we could actually almost say is kind of uh, from a theological standpoint is perhaps the period between Augustine and Martin Luther um, this question uh, doesn't have seem to have quite as much at at stake yeah it's i mean it's a fascinating question and it really isn't theology caught up in terms of who who gets into heaven and who doesn't yeah um, what what's it what's at stake there like what what, well so if you're talking about calvinism a lot of one one well why don't we just bring let's not dig in on like specific theology right now let's just say like in christianity what is this what is the question what is salvation and and what does it have to do with it's it's the works of christ so whether the works of christ um particularly the death and resurrection where the death of christ is the uh, propitiation of sins, the payment for all of mankind's sins, and God's wrath is um, p- uh, poured out upon Christ on the cross, which is a big question. Does God continue to, to be wrathful uh, after the death of Christ, after Christ's crucifixion? Um, big question in theology. Is that work, that's, that is the saving work of Christianity, that sins are paid for? Now, do people choose to believe that, or does God choose people to believe that? That's really the question. Um, if people are capable of their own to choose it, um, there are uh, many sects of Christianity who believe the that's really the Holy Spirit's job, and that then what you're doing is removing a crucial bit of the Trinity, um, and therefore kind of saying God isn't as powerful as certain readings of the Bible say he is. And then other sects of Christianity say that um, no part of what's beautiful about the Gospels is that God has from before time um, chosen those who would believe um, and be saved. He has already called them to himself. Now, yeah, that's so, real thorny stuff. I mean, yeah, because that seems cause like you, if, if you God's have, already decided if I'm right. saved or not, then what does it matter what choices I make? Exactly. Life? I mean, even Paul Paul addresses this and says like, no. Therefore, should I sin so that grace? Uh, therefore, yeah, should I sin so that grace may abound? The answer is like no. Um, so that's like a question that was already on people's minds at the time. Uh, yeah, because if I if he are if God already knows who's who's saved and who's not, why shouldn't I just be drunk on my skull decorated uh, butter militia boat? Right, right. And and I mean, 
look, we could talk about this forever because there's real issues about the um, tradition, the, the, the tradition of the Israelites, the s- traditional stories they told themselves about a people who were called from before they were formed as a people um, to be the light to live out and demonstrate what God intended mankind to be as a people. And ultimately, that is not something that would save the world, but through them would come somebody that would be able to save the world. And the question is, is that saving uh, of the world in that context, is that universal? So then you have the sects of Christianity, which are universalists, which they believe something like it's boiled down to um, how could somebody once confronted by God if there is an afterlife by the love of God, how could they ever reject it? And so what's the need of hell in this case? This is something Origen got, um, I believe this was the question that got him um, kind of branded a heretic by the very early church. Um, so this idea is like, everybody's going to end up loving God because he's a loving God, right? And the point of being a Christian is to then demonstrate that and be the light in the same way that the Israelites were. So there's, all kinds of all kinds of questions around free will here that really boil down to the essence of ultimately what tradition of faith you practice if you are a practicing Christian. Yeah, and this is, and I, I bring up some of these questions, you know, now here because this is um, something that's very important for our Gene Wolf Literary Podcast, right? right? Wolf himself, where is, robots do have saving faith, in, you know, in his later works, they do. And Wolf is an inherent of um, one sect of Christianity that has a particular take on these questions of free will, right? Um, that I suspect actually might differ a lot from much of his reading audience, and I'm, I'm looking forward to when we get to some more of those Wolf works. Um, digging in on that you dive know, into a, it a little absolutely. bit more yeah can't uh, wait <laughs> yeah so so let's let's circle back around here to jack scarecrow and yes. the question of free will so it just seemed to me that that human programmers here who have made who have constrained jack scarecrow's choices are basically a stand-in for god yeah um, uh, you know we're the robots and god is the human programmer um in that sort of one-to-one metaphorical right. relationship right. So I, I guess I want to get back to the question of what exactly is it that, that Jack Scarecrow has done? Is Jack Scarecrow still bound by his programming? Has he just temporarily tricked it? Or is he done with the programming altogether? Does he now Has he found a way to have his own will to violate the, the parameters that have been set for him? No, I don't think so. Uh, what he has done is he's been able to change the game he's playing, but it's still requires the same rules. So he's he's been able to solve the problem he solves philosophically is not about free will but about identity. What makes a person my master? Who what is the essential nature of my master? And he's able to change his definition of that which allows his programming to um, his programming doesn't change, but who he serves changes. And so that's why I think there's two kind of ideas at play that Michael Swanwick I mean, ultimately, they are very closely related, right? Identity is identity is binding and formative, um, and it, and and we ultimately, you know, I believe, um, are revealed to be who we are to ourselves by the choices we make in a given situation. So we may think, you know, I mean, we both served in the military, and there are many who who believe themselves um, to be brave. Um, to have a lot of courage, and then you're put in a situation, and you you don't. Yeah, that's right. You find you, out you simply, right away. You simply do not, and that's not a knock on anybody who served and has froze in in a combat situation. But um, you learn real fast about the kind, really kind of person you are, and then you have to deal with that. You have to integrate that person into yourself, and if you can't, you get stuck for a long time. Um, so we have to be really aware of our limitations and we, the, the, the courage we have to have maybe as people. And I think that Jack shows is to confront those limitations head on. And though we may not change them, it may, our ability to think about the world in different ways while not changing our limitations can impact our actions in really meaningful ways. Yeah, that's excellent. So there's one more thing that I wanted to, to bring up, and it, it's, it's related to this question of will. It's related to this question of identity. 
So re- related to these to these questions is, a, is a, another question that Jack Scarecrow brings up uh, or poses to Sally when he when he says to her, "Do you think that good and evil are hardwired into the universe, as opposed to being just part of our programming?" I mean, do you think they have some kind of objective reality? Mm. So, Brandon, I just want to pose the question to you: <laughs> Do you think do you think that good and evil uh, have some kind of uh, objective objective reality? Wow, what a question! I do I do think so. I think we can objectively state when things violate our sense of the good and we know we can point exactly to what those things are in the world. And while we may in our day and age, and this is, I mean, this is just so interesting with what Swanwick does with his story and the master being this complacent, complacent man. Um, we just did Paul's Treehouse uh, by Gene Wolfe, which also deals with complacent people, um, which is why this is on my mind. But um uh, this goes back to kind of Hannah Arendt's idea about evil being very um, mundane. And there's a great book called, uh, boy, I forget what it's called, but it's about the police battalion in Nazi Germany who executed thousands of people and they, they weren't commanded to. They were allowed to stop whenever they wanted to. And it's just this ordinary men, it's called. It's harrowing. Um, it's actually a book I read for a class in college and it's a book I decided not to keep because it's too much about the real impact of evil and it's just genuinely distressing and we've created people forget i think how much good we have created and sustained in our own society today something like things like hospitals while we don't have universal health care um you can go to a hospital without an id in an emergency room and you can get treatment um because they're not allowed to turn you away um and those hospitals are originally part of religious orders. It turns out yeah, many the idea right. of a hospital, um, orphanages the same way. Um, and so we do a lot of work day to day that um, keeps out evil that in other societies around our world today have not done. This is um, ideas that are deeply rooted in Western civilization, which I'm a huge fan of. There's huge problems with them. Obviously, there's there's a lot of things that are worth revisiting and improving upon. But the ideas of good, of the good, that come from our um, tradition, our philosophical tradition, I think, um, have allowed us to keep evil out um, in a very interesting way that make us forget that there's an objective... Evil. I don't know if there's an objective goal, but there's definitely things like selfishness and um, greed and uh, lack of empathy for others and not thinking about the harm you do when you make a decision um, that do have a real impact in, in the world we live in. Yeah, and I think I think that's really the the central question that that this story takes up is this question of of good and evil, and it and it shows us it, this question of you know is there evil in the world? Is there objective such an object a thing as an objective good or an objective evil, or is everything subje- subjective? Which is right. obviously a big question in both philosophy and theology. And I think that Swanwick here in this story, I think, is coming down squarely on the side of that there that these things are objective, right? that there is such a thing as good and there is such a thing as evil. And what's compelling about this story is that even robots, even machines right. can, can observe this. And we look, we get to make a choice. Ultimately, the choices we make are what the, whether there's a cabal of evildoers who are guiding the, th- you know, <laughs> the things we do and, and, and all this stuff. And there's a cabal of good people who are trying to, you know, the kind of Manichaean idea or like many fantasy stories have this like, you know, the idea of evil. There's always a group of evildoers who have an object, objective goal. And the good people are just like good and, and stout and um, true hearted. And right. that's like an in, in, inborn thing. Like good is inborn, but evil is not um classic kind of fantasy trope and and i think that's why people love fantasy is like the it brings it makes them think about the good in them that's in them that they can do and see evil as this thing that is worth standing against that can feel like it's it's organized but it really comes down to these small choices i don't see my master is not my young master anymore and semantically i'm only have to serve my young master. Yeah. So I'm going to beat that, you know? And this is what we see end up, end up happening here is that this robot, Jack Scarecrow, this machine is able to identify what is good and what is evil is also able to identify that his programming requires him to do something that is evil. And he's able to reject that and right. to claim his own agency. 
he has to do through do so through by circumventing that program by playing some trickery by by right. playing with identity by 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 right. playing the the master of theseus game yeah. here as you pointed and, out and the, and that, that i mean that moment at the end where he he follows one last command he does make his master a drink but that is an act of destruction and it's unclear what he does to the master besides make him a drink um, we're not really told but that kind of act of destroying his master in that sense seeing him already drunken and and slothful and and like a maggot um and then taking it one step further saying i'm required to do more harm to this person um is a real like you know that's a moment that the scarecrow absolutely changes from that is when he is done following orders from this this man his old master yeah absolutely and thinking about you know this story here, uh, the Scarecrow's Boy, as a as a work of art that has real relevance for our lives. You know, at posing these questions, I've been thinking about them. I've been grappling with them all week, and thinking mm-hmm. about how I live my life, the choices that I make, and what I can and and ought to learn from this story. And it does seem to me that that uh, we're getting, uh, you know, we're, we're sort of two antithetical models. Of, of agency thrown up here. There's Jack Scarecrow who can recognize good and evil in the world and make active choices to do good, to protect mm-hmm. the boy Pierre. And we're shown the master who doesn't seem to really make a whole lot of choices, doesn't seem maybe to, to, to think very much about his surroundings. He's this type of, of um, he's the, you know, all that, 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 you know, the question of, of whether or not all it takes for evil to triumph in the world is for good people to not do anything. Right. This is sort of what's happening here with the master, right? Some, something about the world has changed around him as the United States has broken up into these constituent states that right. some of which might have these sort of tyrannical, uh, uh, perhaps kind of fascist ideologies where it's okay to murder little children uh, for the political ideologies of their parents, the identities of their parents. The master here seems to be kind of a, you know, a big fish in a small pond. He's important only because he lives here on the border and he's able to make a living somehow by organizing this border militia. He's making lazy choices about his own comfort, right? right? He's not necessarily looking at the world and saying, well, there's a good choice here and an evil choice here. I'm going to make the evil choice. He's not that epic fantasy type of villain that you were invoking. Right. He's making lazy choices and convenient choices about his own material comfort. Right. But, but Jack Scarecrow, a machine, is able to look more objectively at the world and reject that notion. And this story has really been wonderful for me in thinking about about my own complacency in the world and, and not wanting, I don't want to be the master and I don't want to be any version of the master. Right. But it's, it is easy. To, super easy. It's super, it's super easy to, <laughs> right. to try to tune out the Especially, world and just I mean, sci-fi and The stories. thing is, those, those are the choices we're often given are between one level of comfort and another. I mean, we're rarely faced with, um, and we're both very fortunate people, I would say, in the grand, in the grand scheme of things. But we are rarely faced with, with choices that make us choose between comfort and discomfort. And this story is a great kind of challenge to, to whether or not that ought to be the way uh, life should be lived. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Glenn, thanks for that discussion. That's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha, And I'm Glenn McDormand. Until next time, we greet you and say farewell. All right, Wolfpack, Glenn jumping in here just to let you know that the next Gene Wolf story we're reading is The Island of Dr. Death and Other Stories. It's a real great one. We look forward to hearing from you on the forums, and we'll be back in a fortnight.